Uh, Lord, we're very, very, very thankful for, um, for you. You are our God. We adore you. We are immensely blessed to be called your children. There is no one like you. Your ways are higher than our ways, and you will accomplish all of your purposes. To sit here and to open the Word and to understand any part of it is a privilege and would not otherwise happen if not for the work of your Spirit. You are unspeakably good, and we are unspeakably privileged and blessed. Lord, we uh, confess we are sinners. We are desperately needy. Uh, Tonight, as we study, we have no inherent ability in ourselves to get this or to increase in knowledge or to move forward in the process of sanctification. And uh, we are hard-hearted, we are self-serving, and we desperately, desperately need you to do a work that's outside of us and to help us in our weaknesses. Lord, I'm thankful that we have a God who is knowable. You are not distant. You are not disconnected. In fact, you sympathize with us in our weaknesses, according to the Word. I'm thankful that your Spirit is always at, is always at work. I'm thankful that your hand is one of providence. Lord, as we are in a season, Thanksgiving's next week, Christmas is upon us, the radio's already playing the music, we're already feeling the crunch financially, we're already trying to prepare what to do. There's a lot of just furious, crazy movement and busyness. And I don't want this study or Sunday mornings or small groups to just be a short, brief break in the busyness. Lord, my prayer is that these times inform the other times. My prayer is that our time in the Word, whether it be Wednesday night teaching, Sunday morning preaching, or sitting in a small group uh, responding to the preached Word, or sitting there as a family walking in the Word together with the head of the household shepherding the family, Whatever it is, I pray that it informs the rest of our life. It's not just a break from reality. I pray that our ultimate reality is that we are children of God designed to put your glory on display in everything we do, no matter the circumstances. I pray that we're not taking a break from reality circumstances to escape reality from some spiritual, in some spiritual manner. I pray that we are being authentic, true, persevering Christians that you call us to be. And not only call us to be, but enable us to be by the work of your Spirit, by the finished work of your Son. Lord, we love you. Please guide our time. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we considered the very racy story of Judah and Tamar. Uh, One particularly important truth we need not forget from last week is that Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah from the lineage of Perez, does not need a noble line in which to boast. Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, who impregnated Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who he thought was a prostitute, 
who had Perez and another one whose name I don't remember right now. And eventually that leads to Jesse and David and, and Jesus down the road. Jesus needs not have a noble bloodline to boast in. Jesus stands all sufficient, completely glorious, all on his own. That's really important. If you just read through Genesis 38 and didn't give it much more thought, you'd just blush. Wow, can't believe they said that. But the reality, when we dig a little bit deeper, is that Jesus is all glorious, all sufficient, completely on his own, and does not need any heritage in which to boast. Upon his birth, he is the one redeeming the heritage before him and after him. And he is all sufficient, he's all glorious. Tonight's title is Genesis 39. I had a number of titles. Corey always texts me and says, what's the title for tonight? I had like five. I was going to go with the uh, um, Joseph's, uh, Joseph's work environment's worse than yours, quit whining. I was going to go with the Real Housewives of Egypt County. Um, I had some others, but really what the title tonight is, is Joseph, God, and Potiphar's Wife. And the reason it's Joseph, God, and Potiphar's Wife is it could just be, um, as it's stated here in the little subtitles, which were added after the actual um, words were written, if it was just Joseph and Potiphar's wife, this story would have turned out a lot different. If this was just a night about Joseph and Potiphar's wife, this would have been way, way worse. However, this is Joseph, God, and Potiphar's wife. God makes himself known and very present throughout this whole thing, and it makes a difference to the whole, uh, the whole story that we're going to engage tonight. Before we jump into chapters 39 and 40, I want to recall an important theme that began in chapter 37. Remember in chapter 37, we began to focus on the life of Joseph, but in chapter 38, we took a brief um, embarrassing turn, and then in chapter 39, we come back up with Joseph. But a theme that began there was God's providence. My question to you is, what are some of the ways that we saw God's hand of providence in the story of his brothers faking Joseph's death? He wasn't taking a nap. He wasn't surprised. How do we see God's hand of providence in chapter 37 of Genesis? <coughs> the dreams? How so? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the sheaves thing? One stands up, one bows down. What else? Yeah, it's interesting because you look at that and you think, well, Joseph, if you just would have kept your mouth shut, this wouldn't have happened. Well, by God's design, he was supposed to end up in Egypt. So you see providence there. Where else do we see it? That's right. And why not? Yeah. And how did he be, how was he kept from dying particularly? He was sold into slavery. Why was he sold into slavery? Yeah, there's no, there's no profit in just killing the guy. Let's sell him. Yeah. Yeah, see, the, the, there's a lot of movement here where you could just look at this and say, wow, what a bummer of a story. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. 
But if you realize that God's um, providential hand is at work in all things, um, the story has a very different perspective about it. And it gives us a sober mind to, to know that. It, it, it causes us to be grounded when we find ourselves in similar circumstances. Well, maybe not similar circumstances. You may have never been sold into slavery in Egypt by your evil brothers. But hard circumstances, tough, undesirable circumstances, um, it gives us a sober mind to, to be able to look at that and realize there's more going on here than just what's recorded. God's really good and he's at work and he's moving and he's got big plans for more people even than just Joseph. You may need to be reminded of that. That if you see something happening in your life, you just think, God, just take that away. This is horrible. I don't want this. It's okay to pray that. Philippians says, let your request be made known before God. But the reality is, is he may be dealing with you in a way that affects more than just you. God goes to great lengths to remind us that it's not just about us. He often calls us to turn our thoughts towards others and towards him so that we do not get anxious, depressed, and bogged down because we're always focusing on ourselves. Look at verse 1 in chapter 39 through 5. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Now, this is pretty remarkable. You got a Hebrew slave in Egypt that is causing great success because of the hand of God, and others are noticing it. Now, um, the situation and the circumstances do not define Joseph's fate. This is an important thing to make note of. We made note of it in 37, and we will make note of it again because when God repeats himself, we'll go ahead and repeat ourselves too. His circumstances do not define his fate. Short-sightedness here would lose hope. Oh, man, you're a Hebrew slave in Egypt. Kiss all freedom and goodness goodbye. That's going to be hard. That's going to be really hard. 4,000 years ago, I mean, I was listening to something from a guy this week. He was talking about how the, the, the prisons and slave places 4,000 years ago didn't have cable and a weight room and spa and all those kinds of things. He was noting it was probably very, very rough. But even if you're in the house, it, it, is, it is a little different, but you still don't really have any rights, which we'll talk about later. But it's God who makes the decisions, and he defines the outcomes. And God is with Joseph. If you are the person in this scenario, God's continual presence is an easily forgotten reality. That was another thing we could have titled tonight's study, Easily Forgotten Realities. Man, you see one thing after another after another in Joseph's life. And the reality is God's present. The reality is that God is moving. But the circumstance says, bummer for you, Joseph. And so there's a lot of easily forgotten realities. But one, one thing that I was taught early on, and it's just one of those phrases that stuck with me, and I'd encourage you to write it in your notes, is have a continual awareness of God's presence. Have a continual awareness of God's presence. What happens is a lot of the times we forget about God's presence. And rather than having a continual awareness of it, we find ourselves asking where he went. Where'd you go? What are you doing? What's the deal? 
Come on, these circumstances stink. I thought you were God. This would be so easy for you to fix. Have a continual awareness of his presence. Your perspective changes. And as one who's a new creation in, in, in Christ, um, you'll find yourself able to put his glory on display more rightly if you have a continual awareness of his presence. Another thing I want to consider briefly is how to define success in this verse. Um, and I'm going to ask you to just keep your eye on something as we move. When we see success and God's name in the same sentence, it's a big deal. There's an important point being made, and we need to pay attention. I want to encourage you as we read and discuss to consider that by God's definition, Joseph is successful. I want you to consider as we read that by God's definition, Joseph is successful. Would he be successful by our standards? Think about this, these questions as we read. Would, Joseph be, would you look at Joseph and say, successful by our standards? Because the opposite of success is what? Failure. That's right. The opposite of success is failure. So would you look at Joseph and tend to think, hmm, that's a, that's a loss? Or would you look at Joseph and say, uh, success, not failure? Now, what did Joseph's master get to see in the previous verses that I read? I just read verses 1 through 5, where Joseph is brought into the house. He's a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian house, and he was put in charge of some things, and it went well, and he was put in charge of some more things, and it went uh, even weller. Um, and uh, his master got to see some particular things. What did he get to see? Yeah, the Lord's presence. Well, he was with him. That's important. So you're telling me this Egyptian got to see the Lord's presence because of the way Joseph was doing things. That's pretty cool. What else? The Lord, someone say success, favor. favor. Yeah, the Lord caused success. So this Egyptian's observing the Lord's presence. He's observing the Lord causing success. I want to make a note here. And we're going to talk through this a little more, but in, in these verses, we see Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. In house and in field. Now, the Lord gives us practical insight in practical matters. And this is something that's largely overlooked, and I don't know why. But he gives us practical insight and practical matters. It's not likely that like he was walking around with his magic finger and he'd go up to the livestock and be like, ding, and they're healthier. And he'd go over to the house and see how it's being run and go, ding, and it's run even better, like some Disney cartoon or something. Practical insight and practical matters from God be a blessing. Some men will be given more responsibility and a greater charge by God. Some men are given a greater responsibility and a greater charge by God. The writer of Proverbs makes the case for wisdom. And I want to spend a few minutes looking at Proverbs because it helps us to understand even more fully what's going on here. Proverbs is a book of the Bible. The Bible is breathed out by God and profitable by God's design. It equips us for the good work we're called to. And the writer of Proverbs makes this point for wisdom, this case for wisdom. Essentially, it's like wisdom's good, wisdom's really good, wisdom's great, wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. We are pro-wisdom. And then he says what wisdom does. It's kind of like a political race. 
this guy's great. He's fantastic. He's better than this person and this person. Okay, what do they do? Okay, and this is what he's going to do. That's kind of what happens with wisdom in the book of Proverbs. There's a case made for it. Don't ignore it. Don't say no to wisdom. Say yes to wisdom. By the way, this is what wisdom does. Turn to Proverbs 1. Keep your finger in Genesis 39, but turn to Proverbs 1. The book of Proverbs is full of practical things and other things that are weird and seemingly discreet. But if you read through the book of Proverbs, what you'll find is that wisdom is actually personified as a hottie as opposed to foolishness, which is a non-hottie or skank by biblical terms. Um, Proverbs 1 verse 20. This is going south quick. Look at verse 1, sorry, chapter 1 verse 20. I'm going to read 20 through 33, and I want you all to consider this call of wisdom. 1 verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. I want you all, as I'm reading this about wisdom, picture the wisdom that Joseph must be showing and exercising in the house of Potiphar the Egyptian. cries out at the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They'll seek me diligently, but they won't find me because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. See how the fear of the Lord and wisdom go together. They would have none of my counsel, and they despised all my reproof. Remember, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for reproof is one of the things in that list. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency, the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Now, God in Proverbs three, don't turn there, just listen to this. Three nineteen says, it's talking of wisdom. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By, the, by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So all things created were created by God in wisdom. And in fact, it says that wisdom assisted the Lord in it. He created, no, I'm sorry, he did not create wisdom. Wisdom existed with God before creation. Let your minds expand. Now, this is pretty incredible because what we're seeing here is that God is telling us wisdom was not created for us. Wisdom is imparted to us. 
Wisdom was not created for us. It was imparted to us. And in wisdom, God is saying, I'm giving you something from me. I, God, am giving you something from me. And just so you know, it's not okay to be a, a, a God-fearing, a proclaimed God-fearing believer and a lazy bum. It's not okay. It's not okay for you to say you love me and you fear me and you live for me and you're all about my glory and you're a bum. Not my design. The wisdom that existed before all of these created things that you see does not say that. In Proverbs 1, where does wisdom aim to make itself known? Where is it crying aloud? In the streets? Okay, where else? Entrance to the gate? Where else? You could just read it out loud. The square, the market, yeah. Here's the deal. It, the the uh, wisdom aims to make itself known not just in small little areas. You see wisdom making itself known throughout the city. Wisdom makes itself known in the marketplace. If you're a Christian and you're in the marketplace, guess what? Wisdom is making itself known there. Take heed to God's warning. Take heed to his counsel and do what he says. Don't just say, I'm a Christian and I should be exempt from hard work. That's not how it works. Wisdom makes itself known at the entrance of the city gates. That's where they would meet to make important decisions. And guess what? Wisdom wants to make itself known in there. It reflects the character of our God. Look at Proverbs 5.23. This will start cutting deeper. It's actually speaking of the adulterous one. It says, He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. Wisdom, a lack of discipline is a lack of wisdom. Think about that. Like it's not just behavioral. This is a worship issue. We've talked, you've heard that lingo in a lot of other areas. It's the same in this area. Lack of discipline is lack of wisdom, according to God's design. It's not just, I need a behavioral change. It's a worship issue. It's a heart issue. And it brings death, according to this verse. And it leaves you open to being led astray, according to this verse. Look at Proverbs 6, just a little ways over. Verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief, officer, or ruler... You kind of see the ant working hard by themselves. It reminds you of Joseph. He doesn't have a bunch of Hebrew brethren to hold him accountable to God. She prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Maybe as a teenager, you can recall those days where your mom or dad would say the same thing. How long will you lie there? Get up. The yard needs mowing. The trash needs taken out. Get up. Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, you might be thinking, so God doesn't want me to sleep either? No. In fact, in other places here in Proverbs, we see that hard work in wisdom 
a fruit of that is that God gives you sleep and rest. That's a good thing. Because you're supposed to be working hard, but a little sleep, a little folding of the hands, a little slumber, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. How does a robber normally come upon a person? Yeah, it's not, I'd like to steal your things. It's, it's usually, a, oh man, where'd everything go? And why am I bleeding? Want like an armed man. Laziness leads quickly to poverty, and that's both physical and spiritual. The Bible is laced with physical truths that are spiritual truths. Like when you read things that have a physical implication, there's a lot of times in Scripture where they also have a spiritual implication, and it is so right here. Physical laziness will lead to physical poverty. Spiritual laziness, which we've already termed as a lack of wisdom, will lead to spiritual poverty. You can't expect to be uh, flourishing in the Word when you spend no time in it. You can't expect to be enjoying the treasure that is God's breathed that word and not read it. Spiritual laziness will lead to spiritual poverty. And according to these verses, wisdom includes, and <laughs> I hate having to say all this because I'm pretty sure everyone's real tired right now. Like, I was thinking through this and I was like, man, yeah, wisdom includes preparation and hard work. So quit whining about your job, essentially. And you might be thinking, ah, you weren't at my job today. You were studying your Bible. This is, um, this, is a, this is a reality for God's people. Your job does not have the greater effect on your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is supposed to have the greater effect on the work you do. That's hard sometimes. Sometimes that's really hard. Wisdom includes preparation. It includes hard work. And when it's not there, you're lazy and will find yourself impoverished. Look at Proverbs 8. It keeps going. 8 verse 10. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all you may desire cannot compare with her. Consider what directions we are spent and to what gain. Consider what directions we're spent and to what gain. Why do you do what you do? When you do what you do, what do you get? How much does what you get affect what you do? Wisdom and riches aren't necessarily hand-in-hand or mutually exclusive. The implication here is this. Much wisdom is always needed. Much wisdom is always needed and even better by God's design. This is not the case with money. So, track with me here. If your only reason for working hard is because you'll make more money, then by God's standard, you lack both character and wisdom. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. By God's design, you're supposed to work hard for Him and His glory, whatever your job is, even if you're a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian house. We'll talk more about the details of that in a minute. So if your only reason for working hard is because you'll make more money, then by God's standard, you lack both character and wisdom. I'll only do one more. Proverbs 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. 
Yes. She has also set her table. Yes. And she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. So wisdom has set the table. Wisdom has prepared the house. And wisdom has sent out those to call out to others. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. A lot of people will say they're living a simple life when in fact they're lazy. And I'm looking at the back wall so no one thinks I'm looking at them. A lot of people will say, oh, we just live a simple life, keep it real basic, sleep till noon, put a couple hours of work in, when in reality it's just laziness. Wisdom calls us to turn from simplicity and walk in the way of insight. Wisdom says turn from simplicity and walk in the way of insight, not simplicity in life. Stay simple. Don't overextend yourself financially and find yourself trying to keep up with everyone else. This is, this is, the simplicity we're talking about here is not the, um, your standard of living. The simplicity we're talking about here is your thinking. <laughs> Don't be dumb, is what it's saying. Walk in the way of insight. Many of us make the mistake that we only need to go to God with matters that are particularly religious or spiritual. But for us, more matters should be religious and spiritual and not religious in the empty sense, religious in the James sense of pure and undefiled. But the reality is we need God for everything. We're a very, very needy people. I prayed that at the beginning of this because it's true. We're really needy. Too much of our Christian culture wants to tell everybody how much we got it together. Look at us. We're awesome. No problems here. We're needy, desperately needy. To walk into a church and be blown away by all the sinners there, it'd be like walking into a hospital and be blown away by all the sick people there. That's where we gather. This is where we're supposed to come together and consider God's Word. We need God for everything. And by mandate of our new nature as new creations in Christ, we're to be worshipers or God glorifiers in everything we put our hand to. Think of Joseph. If God aims to be glorified in your job... I think it's safe to say he would employ the work of his spirit in the matter. Think about that. If God aims to be glorified in your job, I believe he will probably not say, I'm going to hold on to my spirit for your prayer life. You better just do a good job. He doesn't just want to give you his spirit for your prayer life only or for your quiet times. He will employ the work of his spirit in anything he desires to be glorified in. Make that connection. It's a really important point. So, you can assume, by God's design, that if he wants you to put his glory on display in something, he's going to help you in it. So, if you are taking trash out all day long, God's going to employ the work of his spirit so that you can take the trash out in a way that puts God's glory on display. And it's possible. Whatever your job is... God's aim is this, and he does help you, and he gives us practical insight into practical matters. We don't just pray to God for obscure and ethereal, spiritualistic thingies. It's bigger than that. He's filling the earth with his glory. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Are you aware of how weak you are outside of Christ? 
Another consideration is don't dismiss a man's spiritual state simply because of his earthly wealth and prestige. It's it's like the other side of the pendulum here. Don't dismiss a man's spiritual state simply because of his earthly wealth and prestige. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now turn back to Genesis 39. We are still in Genesis, not Proverbs tonight. Genesis study, not a Proverbs study. Genesis 39 verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house, in house and field. Consider how God's blessing can be on a person, a house, or a field. That's interesting, isn't it? God's blessing can be on a person, a house, or a field. Now, I don't want to get all hocus-pocus on here and be like, I'll come after this and pray over your car and your shoes and all that. But here, it's for the purpose of blessing his children. So the Egyptian's house and the Egyptian's field had a blessing on it because God was aimed to take care of his child. This is not a health and wealth prosperity gospel. This is one of those verses where, man, people can take this out of context and it's all about you. No, no, no. All this is about God. It's all about his glory. It's all about his fame. It's all about his prestige. It's all about people seeing him for how glorious he is, not about you and the size of your field or your house or whatever. That's an important point, but the blessing is there for the purpose that God has. Verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. All the guy had to worry about, Joseph did such a good job that all Potiphar had to worry about was, what am I going to have for dinner? That's it. Hard day's work, doing nothing but watching Joseph kick tail and take names. What do you owe, Joseph? What am I going to eat for dinner? That's it. That's how good of a job Joseph was doing. Interesting that the only concern left for him was what to eat, not if he ate, what he ate. An important note here is this. Now, in verse 6, the next little part. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This is not always a good thing. Uh, Joseph was a looker. Why? Does anyone know why? It's in God's plan. You're exactly right. (laughs) Two points. Maybe three. So she still, she still doesn't sleep in anymore. Oh, she still, yeah, still doesn't sleep in anything. <laughs> That's wrong. Potiphar had a nice gym. Uh-huh. Potiphar may have had a nice gym. That's, uh, uh, and if, if Potiphar didn't have a nice gym, he certainly had to work anyway. Um, uh, 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 Joseph's uh, mama was Rachel, not Leah. That's why he was a looker. (laughs) Leah was not pretty. And Joseph was, because he didn't come from Leah. Um, Okay, now this is a question. And this is a question, uh, it'll seem laughable at first, and then it'll seem sad, and then it'll seem convicting, probably. (laughs) Maybe. Or else it bombs and we end the study early. Uh, What is your perception of a man or woman who's extremely successful and pretty? Oh, very good answer. Are you going to have her listen to this when you get home? Hey, you should listen to the study. Scott asked a great question and I had a 
insightful answer. What is your perception of a man or woman who you're not married to who is extremely successful and pretty? <laughs> Patrick, you make a good point. They got with the guy because of their looks. Did anybody else have that thought? No. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Charmed life. Yeah. Do you find yourself seeing people who are successful and pretty and saying, man, I'm so happy for them? Praise the Lord. It's so good that that happened to them, not me. Um, we will generally put up with one, but not both. That's what I, my observation is. We'll generally put up with successful, and we'll generally put up with pretty. But if you're both, well, I'm going to question your authenticity. How'd you get to where you got? All those kinds of things. I fear some question, questions. <laughs> I fear some Christians would be quick. It's hard to say. I fear some Christians would be quick to dismiss a Joseph. Would you dismiss Joseph? You, you wouldn't have. She wouldn't have. <laughs> As a single person. What I'm referring to is this. And just, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Her husband has something to say. Go ahead. <laughs> Yes, yes. Success here is all God's standard, and we're going to see it weave through this, and we'll probably come back to it at the end, come back to it next week and the next week, because it gets better and better for Joseph, sort of, depending on your perspective. Here, I fear some would be quick to dismiss Joseph, and what I'm referring to is this. Go with me on this and listen. I'm referring to this unspoken bent towards the ugly and poor Christians. I'm not heartless. It seems a sort of overcompensation to me. I'm speaking very candidly. The reality is that partiality is partiality. Is it not? Sometimes you'll see a church full of only Successful and pretty people. Because there's leadership that will only want to serve those kinds of people. Many times it is because you want their approval and their tithes. Sometimes believers prefer, and I'm, I'm not just talking about ministerial staff, I'm talking about believers, the saints who are equipped for the work of ministry, sometimes believers would prefer not to minister to pretty and rich people. Mainly because in many cases they would feel a need to earn that person's favor as opposed to love them with truth. And to earn that person's favor, it might mean altering the message, which is heresy. Don't add to it or take away from it. The problem is not likely that person's wealth, and the problem is not likely that person's uh, physical beauty. It is likely your lack of authenticity that is the problem. The problem is likely a lack of authenticity. 
I'm uncomfortable talking to them. I'm uncomfortable telling them the hard truths about um, everything. Why? Because they're pretty and rich. The problem's not their wealth or physical beauty. It's likely your lack of authenticity. A person, listen, remember what Brad preached this Sunday. A person with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith will preach, teach, and communicate truth, not an altered version of it. The gospel is for the poor, the rich, the pretty, and the ugly. I've seen it. I've observed it where people will only minister to the poor and ugly Christians because they're uncomfortable with the rest of them. And that's partiality too. And I don't know if I hear many people speaking towards it. But it is what it is. Can we please move on to verse 7? And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Oh, goodness. Potiphar's wife, the original real housewife, that whole housewife thing on the TV, it's not new. It happened here 4,000 years ago. This is the way of those who are carnal, driven by the eyes with no regard to consequences. It should remind you of Esau. By the way, this is not part of the blessing for those of you guys who think it might be. I'll explain that more later. He's pretty and he's rich and successful and his boss's wife wants to sleep with him? That's not part of the blessing. That's a mistake. Turn over to Proverbs 5. Keep your finger in Genesis. Proverbs 5, verse 9. Well, verse 8, speaking of the adulterous one, particularly the adulterous woman. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised the truth, despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. In adultery, you give away your honor. In adultery, you give away your years. In adultery, you give away your strength. In adultery, you give away your labors and eventually your life. Adultery in the book of Proverbs is placed in direct opposition to wisdom. Consider how many people you have seen, even particularly, maybe most particularly in ministry, who have fallen to this. Adultery is placed in direct opposition to wisdom. Look at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. This is a sober-minded response. Joseph's main concern is not just sin against his earthly master, but sin against God, his eternal master. Our attitudes towards our temporary superiors can reflect our attitude toward our divine superior. If you act like your boss is a chump every day at work, you may be communicating to others that you also think your God is a chump because God says don't do that. 
This would look like, when you consider what this looks like practically, it looks like you work hard for the glory of God, not always discontent, not always in it for your own personal gain, and, and always in it for the glory of the Lord. Joseph actually speaks of Potiphar's character in his defense. What would you do if you became the big man on campus? He's a big man on campus. What would you do? Men? Potiphar was likely pretty. The captain of the guard doesn't normally choose an ugly wife. What would you do? Look at verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Sometimes perseverance in the faith will be a daily denial of the same thing. Sometimes perseverance in faith will be a daily denial of the same thing. Put sin to death daily. For some, the temptation may never go away. But the ability to overcome it is always there. And here's what I want you all to see here. He is putting sin to death in really difficult circumstances. I mean, you may have to walk past the same person every day and put sin to death, put sin to death. You may have to have the same conversation. Don't give in to the flesh. Here, as a slave, a Hebrew slave, Joseph uh, has no rights. What happens if you are sexually harassed at work? You got rights, you got a lawyer, you can find another job, you can leave. I mean, you got all kinds of things you can do. Joseph couldn't file a complaint. He can't quit. He can't look for another job. He's a slave. He can't even leave the house. He's in the living room. Potiphar's wife comes in. Hey. He goes to the dining room. Potiphar's wife comes in. Hey. He goes to the kitchen because he can't leave the house. You think your work conditions are hard? How's your work environment comparatively? It's interesting how Joseph's garment also plays a continual role, particularly in deceiving other people. Just an interesting note. In verse 10, there's an implication here that what matters most is that you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Even the most noble and regal clothing can deceive, and it's only those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness are truly counted as righteous in God's eyes. Look at verse 11. But one day, uh uh-oh, See this coming. When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. Oh, man, empty house. This is bad. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. Subtle lady, isn't she? Let's make a note. She's not the only woman who's ever been like this. Just to make a note. Both men and women are wicked. Lie with me. I'm in charge here. No one else is around. You're the Hebrew slave. Did it sound like a question? It wasn't a question. The order. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Some people say he ran out naked. No, he was at least lacking some clothes. Personal integrity matters, man. Personal integrity matters. 
He's not surrounded by a bunch of Hebrew brothers who are reminding him of what his Lord wants. He's in a foreign country with no accountability. He didn't get to go to church that week and have worship with his fellow brothers and sisters. It's likely that Joseph was a virgin who never even had a girlfriend. And Potiphar's wife is a hottie who's persistent and likely good-looking. And no one's at home. And it's an order. I mean, think... Hey, uh, I'm just a slave. She ordered me to do something, and I did that. I don't want to get in trouble. Probably never going to get married. Probably never going to have a wife. I mean, this is like pretty, if you're an opportunistic young man, this is the situation you've been looking for. Personal integrity matters, though. Joseph's been taken from his home. He has no accountability. What if Joseph gave in? Think about how different it would be if Joseph gave in. The whole story would be different. Men, be aware of your surroundings. It is likely that Joseph had grown accustomed to her constant advances. I said once no, I'll say once again, and I'll say no again tomorrow, and I'll say no again. I mean, constant advances. But the circumstances changed, and her advances persisted, and now Joseph finds himself alone with her hands on him. Men, again, what would you do? You're one step away from the most powerful man in Egypt. There's the king of Egypt, and there's the captain of the guard, and his wife wants you. Would you try to sleep with her and maybe overcome that guy and say, I got your woman, I'm going to have your job, and I'm going to have your household, and I'm one step away from Pharaoh, a Hebrew? Would you be opportunistic, or would you have some personal integrity? What one man sees as a horrible problem, another man sees as a great opportunity. That's what foolishness of sin does. This is a problem. I got to get out of here. While another man may have said, this is awesome. Sadly, many men do not run away. In fact, many men will blame their circumstances with sad and godless excuses like, it just seemed like it was meant to be. The house was empty. Normally, the house is never empty. And again and again, her love for me grew every day. Bull. It was undeniable. It was inevitable. Bull. There was a, there was a, uh, a married woman who decided um, she was going to run away with another guy. Um, they were local. I knew who they were. Uh, didn't approve of the other guy at all. Still don't. And uh, I saw him at a local place. And... Uh, he tried to talk to me, came up and said, hey, man, I know we're kind of, you know, things are weird, but me and so-and-so are so in love. It was so meant to be. We're so happy. Oh, I just want to be this, and I want to be this, and it was inevitable. It was going to happen. I think maybe she should even just married me first because it's so perfect. I didn't punch him in the face. But I did look at him and say, you know what? Infidelity is infidelity. For anyone else who wants to hear. And what you're doing is trying to make it look pretty, and it's really wicked and disgusting and ugly. Stop it. It is what it is. It's not right. What you did was wrong, and you know it. And that was pretty much the end of that conversation. 
But you don't just trip and fall into infidelity. It often occurs just like this, a day after day after day pursuit. And Joseph appears to run from the house with a lack of clothes. Look at verse 13. Oh man, this lady's something else. As soon as she saw that, she had, that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he is brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at him. He who? Who's she blaming there? Her husband. It doesn't take long for a schemer to come up with a scheme or a liar to come up with a lie. He came into me and to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled to get out of my house. Well, that's quite the different story. She's got Joseph coming in, taking off his clothes. What? That's not quite the reality that we know. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. I'll just hold on to this. I might need this in a minute. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought among us, you bonehead, came in to laugh at me. (laughs) But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. This lady's crazy. Potiphar's wife blames her husband, accuses Joseph, and places herself squarely in the role of the victim. Remind you of anyone? It's supposed to be Esau, but if you thought of someone else, it may be them too. (laughs) There are people who operate like this daily. If I can't get what I want, I'll at least get sympathy from whom I want it. And she incites his Hebrew heritage, stirring up old racism and conflict. Someone who's in a position like that will pretty much do anything to make themselves look better and everybody else look worse, not just one person. You're the husband, you brought him in, it's your fault, and I yelled, and he was, it, he, was, he was making a mockery of me. He was laughing at me. I mean, this lady is something else. Look at verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison the place where the king's, prisoner was con- king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Oh, dang, Joseph did the right thing, and he went to jail. Was God sleeping? Nope, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Man, you ever managed a prison before? No. Well, you're in charge. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything. That's like a dream job, right? The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Things appear to take a turn for the worse for old Joseph in the king's prison with the king's prisoners, and as a slave, again, remember, Joseph has no rights. The reason he went directly to prison was because no one said, Joseph, do you have a plead? You're a slave. Go to prison. No rights, no counsel. But in verse 21, we see God do something wonderful. The Lord was with Joseph. He never forsook him, never turned from him. He showed him steadfast love. God gave him favor in the eyes of the jailer. Now, neither Potiphar nor the jailer particularly loved God or feared him, did they? Neither Potiphar or the jailer particularly loved God or feared him. But God caused them to have favor on one of his chosen children. You may consider how this could affect your prayers. Maybe you should pray for favor and perseverance, not just deliverance. A lot of times just pray, deliver me. This stinks. 
Maybe you pray for perseverance and maybe you pray for favor. God does that. He did it with Potiphar. He did it with the jailer. Now, Potiphar went south because of his crazy wife, but that's something else. Joseph was not just given charge over the prison, the prisoners. He was given unattended charge. You'll never get to this point if your only aim is to keep it out of the ditches. Joseph's work ethic is so notable here. Consider that Joseph had one of the worst jobs in the world. No benefits, no place to leave. Someone accuses you, you just, "Ah, okay, I guess I'll go to jail. Joseph must have exercised keen insight with a strong work ethic wherever he went. You ever been a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian house? No, okay, you're in charge. Wow, man, he must have really done something. It wasn't just God stirring up men to be stupid. God was stirring up men to have insight that Joseph can run things. He, he can just, he can make this happen and make this happen and, and move some things over here and get these guys to do their work. They never do their work. Joseph's getting them to do their work. That's pretty cool. And, uh, and the prisoners, well, um, I'm the prison guard, but I kind of feel like I can take a nap because Joseph apparently has everything in order. Joseph was sharp. God's work in the lives of men is not meant to go unnoticed. Don't think that just because you're not doing like full-time ministry or a pastor or preaching or something that you're supposed to go unnoticed. God's work is to be noticed. It'll often make itself known in really practical ways. I want to work hard and lead well and exercise good judgment because I want to put God's glory on display in everything. Not being driven by the praise of man or accolades and approval. Being driven by the fact that our God is great and glorious and people need to know that. And you are where you are so people can be made known. So God's glory can be made known in whatever you're doing. Unless it's sin. Don't, don't, you can't do it in sin. I feel like I should probably say that. <laughs> can't like be a stripper and put God's glory on display. Don't, you know, don't do that. Um, in everything, in most things. Um, many things. Uh, when you come to be known by Jesus... And when you come to know Jesus, you're not changed in some just ethereal and obscure way. Uh, God's aim is, is that his glory is put on display and that those who know the shepherd and are meant to hear the shepherd's voice will hear it and come running. It's not God's design that he would enable uh, you to work harder for your own glory than his. There's a lot of men, particularly some women. I just see it in men. I'm a man, so I can see the sin who will work very, 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 very hard for their own glory. If you're a child of God, God would never enable you to work harder for your own glory than he would for his. So I would say that because of that, God would enable certain men and women to be very successful in what they do so that he might be glorified. It's not like, hey, if, if you want your praise and your glory to be known, I'm going to bless you and let you work really hard and smart. But if, if you want mine, I'll just, uh, good luck. Why would God do that? God would say, oh, you're about my glory? Okay, let's, let's do some things. Let's put it on display. Now, I'm not saying everyone, <laughs> if you pray, we're all going to be smarter and wiser and our businesses are going to grow and we're all going to be rich and we might even get pretty. I'm not saying that. <laughs> not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that there are some very practical implications to this. And, and God is um, always aiming to put his glory on display. And he, he gives us insight into, um, into anything he calls us to. And so if he's calling you to what you're doing, 
uh, and you're a believer, he's going to give you insight into that. And if you're not trusting him for it, you're at fault. Wisdom says that's foolishness. Let's pray because it's late. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for your word. Uh, I pray for wisdom. I'm thankful for James. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But do not ask thinking maybe. We believe you, Lord. We trust you. I pray that you would give us wisdom. Everyone in here is likely going to have a very different day tomorrow. We're going different directions. We're tending to different tasks and things, and it's all about your glory. We don't just get through the day with our head above water and then try to glorify you in our quiet time at home. It's all about your glory because you are a great God who is filling the earth with his glory via your children who you call vessels of mercy who are fragile and common yet still you clean us out and you fill us up to be poured out as you see fit, spending and being spent gladly. A lot of us are okay with spending and, being spent, spending and being spent, but we don't know how to be spent gladly. And for those who are struggling with that, I pray that you would help. Help us in our weaknesses. I'm thankful for a very real spirit who intercedes for us and helps us. We need it desperately. You are unspeakably good, Lord. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we got to spend time in it tonight. Most of all, we're thankful for Jesus, a work outside of us, a righteousness counted to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.